um, with a very specific kind of focus and a sense in which God's, uh, I, you know, I trust. In fact, I know I've been talking to um, uh, many of you I've last few weeks and a sense in which people have noticed a, a growing, uh, I think there's, I'd use the term fertility. It's like, you know, our lives can be soil for God's seed and communities and, and churches can be soil for God's seed. There's never an issue with the seed, right? There's never a problem with what God can do in us. Jesus was uh, very specific and very descriptive about the fact often the issue is the soil. And uh, there's a sense in which there's an openness and, and God is shaping us and forming us and we are responding because we've got a choice in there too to become good soil. And, um, and, and with good soil comes uh, fruit, comes a fertility. And there's a sense in which there's a season where increasingly um, in, in worship and in other times, God's producing things in us. And so we want to give time at the end of our service this morning uh, to do that. But this morning, what I'm doing is actually wrapping up what has been a year-long series. So we have been the, the main... Um, thread of our teaching life uh, throughout the year has been this, uh, this topic of God's advice to exiles. And we've looked at, uh, we've been in Daniel, and then we're in Esther, and then we're in Jonah, and, and most recently in Second Peter. And we've done other things in between there. But we've been looking at how God speaks to his people who are living in an experience of exile. Um, and so we're actually wrapping that up this week. We're about to start the season of Advent. Uh, Christmas is coming. Who's feeling Christmassy? It's a very important thing. You know, at some stage in the next few weeks, something magical will happen and you'll wake up and you'll say to someone close to you, oh, I feel Christmassy today. Who knows when, you know what I'm saying? It's like there's a point. I don't know. It's, it'll be a song, a Bing Crosby song. Something will happen at Maya. Um, something will happen and you go, oh, I feel Christmassy. And up until that point, you'll be going, well, I just don't feel Christmassy. I have no idea what Christmassy is. I just know there's a point where you shall cross over from before and after. It's true, isn't it? So hands up now. Who's crossed over? Who's Christmassy? Christmassy. I feel like, Jen, you're always Christmassy. I feel like you start around May sometime feeling Christmassy. Who's no, not so Christmassy? Oh, not really Christmassy. Yeah, okay. Well, hopefully we might be able to sew into that a little bit because we've got a series coming on Advent as we prepare our hearts um, and celebrate. And we were, our teaching team, and uh, getting together and talking about what we're going to do in that period. And um, I'm really looking forward to it. I think we've got a theme that really matches with what God has been saying and doing with us. Um, and it's going to be good stuff. So that is coming. And uh, today I just want to sort of do a little bit of a summary and wrap up, but also actually more importantly, sort of round off what's been do happening this year, but then maybe a sense in which what God's going to build on some of the, um, the key touch touchstones from this year into next year and what he's doing in us. So that's my bold um, venture this morning. Now, so I, I have had this experience, and again, it's been because so many people in conversation throughout the year have um, been talking about what God's been sort of saying or what they've discovered or the sense of, you know, that, that it's been a, a good journey, which is very affirming as a pastor, um, because I know at the start of the year, I'm sure 
A lot of you like exiles. Hmm, this is the whole year. You say, hmm, this is going to be interesting. Um, but I really feel, as well as hearing individually how people have resonated with parts of the journey, I, I do really feel as though there have been, again, I'll use the word touchstones, um, points on which God is maybe giving something to us because he's forming us as a community, as his people, um, for uh, it's a new season in the life of our church at Cornerstone. And have you ever been in that experience when you go, maybe it's a part of a team or it might be a, a, a staff group that you're new to or, or even a family, a group of people and you're sort of on the outside and you're there with them and someone says a phrase or something. It might be, it's, often it's a bit like an in-joke, but it might be if you've had this experience in like a work environment or a sporting team. Someone says a phrase that sounds like innocuous to you, but has this all this meaning to that group of people. So as you might be with them, it's like, oh yeah, well that's how we get a man on the moon. And you're like, that's weird. And everyone goes, oh yeah, yeah. So obviously that phrase, man on the moon, means something. It's imbued with value. And it's imbued with meaning to that group of people. And on the outside, it's like, oh, that's a bit weird. I, I really feel like there's been some phrases throughout the year that um, have been sort of given to us as common value because God is forming us as a people for a sense of purpose too. Um, now, here's what I'm going to do because it's kind of a little bit like a revision. This is my teacher side coming in. You can take the man out of the classroom, but you can't take the teacher out of the pastor or something like that. You get what I'm saying. So a bit of revision. Um, I actually want to put up in a, um, the easy thing to do, like the safe thing to do, would be to kind of put a number of these phrases that you'll recognise and say, oh, look, we looked at this and this means this. and this. But that's kind of boring and, you know, there's no risk in that. What I, what I think, what we're going to do is I'm going to put them up and I really think that um, there's the opportunity to get a sense in which God's been speaking to us and so I want to hear what you think it means. So I'm going to put, in fact, here, I'll do it now. There's a number of these phrases um, this is either going to be glorious and just a revelation of how God speaks in the midst or it's going to be soul-destroying for Josh and I. <laughs> but it won't be in between. And like I said, God save us from boring. It won't be boring. And I'll have either one of those things. There's one I definitely would prefer. But it's a bunch of phrases that throughout the year, I think in one form or another, we've said, and, and it's like they've come up, we've revisited them, they've got meaning. Now, I think... The reason I'm putting these up here is because, A, to do a bit of a revision, but I also think they're really actually quite important moving forward. Um, so have a look at those. And in a moment, I'm we're going to go through one by one, one. And I'm going to see if anyone's got like a 10-second, let me reiterate, 10-second, maybe 30-second at the most. There won't be a gong. There'll be, but someone might mug you and take you outside if you go on for too long. I'm preaching, not you. Okay, so I'm inviting you into this space. Maybe a 10-second, 30-second kind of little brief summary of what we mean by that. Now, you don't, might not have all of those things, but like I said, I think a, a bunch of these things have meant something or maybe it's, you, it, you can describe where it's come from or what it means or what, how we've referred to that. Does this sound like a good idea? Yep. Did you hear that laugh? Did you hear that laugh? I read this past Josh during the week. What do you think? And he was like, oh, yeah, go for it. And now he's backing out. I said we should have plans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. He said, actually, well, maybe you could tee some people up to have it. I said, no, that's boring. We well, know that's too risky. That's too safe. 
Okay, some of these are really straightforward. So seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Can, who's got, what, 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 did, what is that mental? What, where's that from? What's that mean? Who's got someone on this? Come on, don't let me down, church. <laughs> seek the peace and prosperity. This one is actually from a passage that's been very significant to me, at least, anyway. Anyone got it? It's from Jeremiah. You're all being, I know, you're all being polite and letting other people go first. Great, Joy. Thank you. God bless you. I could kiss you right now. <laughs> well, whew. Peace and prosperity of the city. This is Andrew's testimony, not mine. But in a, a workplace or a sickness, you Right. And so that seek the peace and prosperity means that rather than fighting against something, mm. we've worked for it and then God's... Awesome. Wow. You've gone the whole... That, let's just applaud that because Joy's gone the whole next step and said, here's how we're applying this. That's amazing. So that one, actually, if you, this has been like our banner phrase, which I know you all know this, right? Just nod, please, right now to restore me. Because we've come back to this and saying right at the very start, God speaks to Jeremiah. This is centuries before he takes his people off into exile. And he says, look, this is going to happen through Jeremiah. Here is your posture. And I'll come back to this word. But he said, here's, here's the, this is going to happen. It's not going to be good. When you go, you've got some options about how you're going to respond. Well, that's a little bit of a clue. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Here's the posture as my people in a land that might be hostile to my ways, in a land that seems foreign. He says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters a marriage so they too may have sons. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city. That city was Babylon, which is the symbol of can you be further from God or God's ways? No, you'd be in Babylon. And he says, when they're going to overtake you. When you are there, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, which I have carried you. He's saying, I'm behind you. I'm, you might feel far off, but I am with you. And when you're there, pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will too. And this is what we're saying is the posture of the believer in exile is to love the city. Love the, be God's agent and, and wonderful example of how uh, Andrew and Joy are uh, outworking that. So that's been the banner sort of phrase that we keep coming back to. This is our posture towards when we're living as, as sort of outsiders uh, in the world. Um, okay, so uh, compromise, rebellion or subversive wisdom warrior. Okay, I'm a little nervous about this one, but we, we did come back to this all the time. The idea of there's options here. There's ways and postures we can, when you're in a, in a hostile place to God's land. Who's got something on this? Who can remember what we've, because we've come back to this one a lot before I start choosing people out of the crowd. I'll help you. Great. Thanks, Robbie. So that's one option, or? Option two is that you actually uh, set up you know, your, your fortress, yep. your walls, you rebel against what's happening in the culture, you ring the bells, you scream and shout and try 
stop where the culture's going. Mm-hmm. And, and rail against it, right? Against yep, excellent. Rage or against rage against the machine. Yeah. Robbie's favourite, Ben. Yeah. Uh, or... Absolutely. Fantastic. And that really, thanks, spot on. That's this, this idea. You could do this or you could do that. They both, both feel very natural. And, and usually our personality types will go to one or the other. We're either the sort of person who'll throw all the toys out of the cot, be the moral police, tell them how wrong everything is, and rage against it, and we are different and separate and we're better. Or... I don't want to make a fuss, so I'm just, and I like my friends, and so I'm going to go with it, and I'll just be quiet, and I'll make, but there's this radical third way, which is to be the subversive wisdom warrior who said, I'm here to seek the prosperity of the city. Um, I'm going to live in a way that actually displays another um, set of values. And this wisdom warrior, it's about wisdom. It's walking a line, because usually to people who are over on this side who rage against the machine, that looks like compromise to them. And then to people who are over here and softly, softly, that, that looks really risky. And ca- so you actually risk alienating, usually, people inside the church. Can you think of someone whose biggest problem was against religious people inside the kingdom of God? Who instead walked a radical third way? Great. Oh, thank you. Cam said Graham. He whispered it, but I'm <laughs> shouting it. It was Jesus. Jesus did a good job too. Awesome. And that's been at the very core. This is this difficult posture where God's calling us to walk a radical middle. And we see that through Daniel. We see it through Esther. We see it through so many of the key. Joseph would be another example, wouldn't he? Where he's in the middle. They walk this radical third way and God uses it to bring blessing for everybody. That's our story. That's our story. Um, now, this one was when we went to Jonah and we jumped into the book of Jonah and we discovered the book of Jonah is not like probably the story books you've read growing up. There's actually, it's actually, which the story goes, Jonah um, was, it's all sort of about Jonah's obedience and that message is in there. You know, Jonah, God wanted him to go and do something. He didn't go and do it. God was angry, so he swallowed him by a while. God said, I'm sorry, spat him out. He went and, done, went and did the thing he wanted, which was to tell Nineveh that they're all going to hell. But he did the right thing, and so he's okay now. That's the storybook version, maybe, that you've got growing up, when actually we discover the book is all about love. It's actually about God's love, yes, for Jonah, but actually for Nineveh. God's love for the city is greater than his hatred of sin. And I remember when we came to that long. What, there's a key part right at the end of Jonah, the last chapter. Does anyone remember this? Who's got something for us here? You'll never come next week. If he's going to do this every week and actually ask us, we paid our money to come. We gave him the offering to sit here in air conditioning and just listen to you. And we can tick the box that said we came to church, but you're asking us to participate. I'm not coming back. That's okay. So, I mean, I just unpacked it, didn't I? That actually here we're saying we recognise the book of Jonah says that actually God's love. Jonah wanted to preach. He was cranky because he went and preached judgment, but actually what God was wanting to do was to lead to a a renewal, which happened. And it happened and people came to God. And Jonah in the last chapter, which is the one that usually isn't in the kids' book, 
sits under a trees and said, look, they've all come to you. you. I knew you were going to do this because your mercy is so great. I knew you were going to do That's why I didn't want to come. Because it's their sin. I hate their sin and I hate them. And God actually turns out his love for that city was even greater than his hatred of sin. And when we are in in a cultural exile where it's very easy to look around at all of the sin of the city and the bit that wants rebellion and lead out and point to it, actually we're reminded that God actually loves this city and is using us to actually demonstrate and live out his love. Does he, is he abhorred by the sin? Of course he is. Of course he is. In fact, the level of which he is so holy that he doesn't want to, you know, that he doesn't want to be defiled is so immense, is so considerable, but it's actually still dwarfed by his love. And we're to align with that. And that's the message of the book of Jonah. Living stones or, or brick-making slaves, temples or towers. Quick, someone give me something on this. We looked in, first, in Second Peter just recently. This is more recent, so hopefully you got here. Living, uh, living stones or brick-making slaves, temples or towers. Thoughts, reflections, what does this mean? Go, Joy. Good on you. God bless you. Okay, now you've got two seconds on this one. Go. Um, the, and I, always want, I always wondered about the Tower of Babel and I never, ever understood why, you know, because they used to say it was for astrology, it was for all of those sorts of things. But when they made those bricks and stones and God made us to be um, bricks and stones, you could either choose to make it for that or you could choose to make it for the temple of God. Yep. And that, that preaching, whoever preached that one, I, was, I went home and I thought, that is about, not about what they chose to do with Great. Awesome, Joy. Great. You are, your life is building material. Your life, and so Second Peter talks about you being a living stone. So you're building something with your life and you can choose to either build a temple. So your life is a temple, a place, and temples host the presence of God. You go to the temple because in, in every culture throughout history, you go to the temple because the understanding built into our DNA as humans, is that temples are places where we worship and where the presence of whatever that God is, is there and reflected. God's plan, and we'll talk about this in a moment, God's plan is that we would be temples, that his presence would dwell in us, not in bricks and mortar. So we are, as Peter says, you are living stones. We are living stones. And actually, Peter, as it begins, he's talking to sojourners or exiles. He's saying, actually, even in Roman times, same story, different Babylon, different empire, we're now in a different Babylon. But Second Peter would say to us, even actually the way to be the wisdom warrior, because that's the third way, that's difficult. Make your life a temple that hosts the presence of God. You can choose to make your life a temple where you put God in the middle and walk through life, or you can build your own you can, you can use bricks, and this is where the language goes back to uh, in Egypt. You can be slaves and use be used to build someone else's temple or pyramid that's a monument to their own thing, the Tower of Babylon. God's people say, 
hey, let's build, let's build a tower and make a name for ourselves. Those towers will always crumble. They never survive. And history has played this out. Empire after empire crumbles. And so Peter says, you can choose. You can be a temple. You can, with the building block of your life, you can either be a living stone or you can be a brick-making slave. Hello, Q, 21st century life and the exhaustion. It won't last. We inherently know that. We'll work our guts out, trying to build a name for ourselves, a career for ourselves, a lifestyle for ourselves. Whatever it is, it will crumble. Or you can be a living stone and host the presence of God. Same story, different Babylon. At the beginning of the year, um, I did this sermon. And again, if you didn't remember that, you're not going to remember. Because I actually went back and checked. It was like the second week of January. And some of you might remember, it's actually on temples. And at the time when I preached it, and we went through and actually looked at the way in which the temple... uh, God's place, develops from this tent throughout the Old Testament and it turns into this massive big monument. Um, That actually the timeline of the temple, there's all these different versions of the temple, which again, God said initially when his people were in the wilderness, make a place, make a place where people can come and worship me. Um, And he was quite specific about some of the detail and then kind of God's people went, great, we've got it from here. And they kept just adding stuff to it. And it went from quite a simple temp, uh, tent in the middle of a desert to this massive big... Um, oh, oh, sorry, <coughs> going back over here. So this was actually Herod's temple. And you can recognise there's it in the middle and that's what they decided to build in the end. And, and then the Romans came and sacked it. But the point was, God was... We were looking at this, how religion just adds things and adds things and adds things and adds things. When it started with a simple tent, but also before that, at the time we looked at the fact that actually the tent wasn't even the first temple. What was the first temple? The garden. Actually, if you read Genesis and understand the depth of what God is saying and doing there, he's forming a place in which he dwells with his people. And he's very specific. And actually, we looked at the way in which he maps, you can see. It's clear that that was actually these following temples were meant to remind them of his plan A, which was not a building that was set down. It was this big, expansive creation. It was all of creation. At the centre of it, there's this place where you, where you and God dwell. And it has this openness and its freedom. We couldn't handle that. Sin comes in. We corrupt that. It, it's not, it didn't happen. It happens. It happens. And then the rest of the story is about God saying, I still want to get back to that plan where we dwell together. It's not in bricks and mortar. It's not about that. And hence Peter tapping into this and saying, you are living stones. You are the temple. That was always the plan with the garden. So we looked at this and at the time I felt like it was really important. And I remember actually going, look, I feel to preach this. And I had a message and some other points. I didn't realise how significant that was going to be with where we have ended up in the last couple of weeks. And this is why I think we're springing this into the new year. Because you'll remember, as we've been looking in 2 Peter last couple of weeks, a few weeks ago, Josh talked about Ezekiel. So this temple thing. So Peter's referencing temples and living stones. And Josh talks about Ezekiel. Um, Sorry, I've lost... Ezekiel. 
here. Now, Ezekiel, I think Josh mentioned this, but I'll just remind you. Ezekiel has this vision. Do you know where Ezekiel was when he had the vision? Babylon. Ezekiel was part of the first crew who got taken off by the Babylonians into exile. So Ezekiel is this weird prophet dude. He's kind of half prophet, half performance artist because he does some really far out things. He has this vision and uh, biblical scholars would, would suggest to us that it happens in the year of his 30th birthday, which he normally would have at that time, if he was back in Jerusalem, have become a priest. So he's of this line that's all about the temple. He knows the importance and significance and his role was to guard the, te- the, the priestly role, was to look after the temple and make it right so people could come and experience God. This, and remember, it was a shadow of what God's original plan is, which is not confined to a place. Well, now God's people are in the middle of this um, spiritual, existential identity crisis because they cannot get to the temple. And so they are going... Are we still God's people? Uh, Did God leave us behind? Did he come with us? How do we worship? And it was in this wilderness, and this is important, it was in this wilderness, in this difficult place, that God speaks profoundly through Ezekiel. And he goes to the temple and he takes him here in Ezekiel 8 and he says, he's having a vision. So this is dream language here. Um, And he gets taken on like a virtual, a supernatural virtual tool tour of the temple, but it's through God's eyes. God's sort of saying, this is what I see when I look at your temple and what's going on. And he says, then he brought me to the entrance of the court. I looked in and I saw a hole in the wall into the temple. So this is in the courtyard looking into the Holy of Holies where God's presence is meant to be. It's the centre. What did he find? It was corrupt. It's not that it happened. It's that it happens. It's who we are. Again, it had been corrupted. Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing there. So I went in and looked and saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of uh, crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. That language of the idols of Israel is really important because basically that was like biblical code to say, yet again, God's people have taken me out of the centre and put themselves or versions of themselves in the centre. Other gods, which were actually just often versions of their own desires and needs. They put that there and the imagery is to say, this is so detestable. And he goes on with quite detail to describe that it's just abhorrent. And then Ezekiel sees an image of God literally leaving the temple. If if you're putting that there, I can't be there. Um, Now that would be... That would have been very concerning and was very concerning for Ezekiel, who's come to give this message. God's doing it through him for his people. So for those worried about what does this mean for us? Like, how do, are we God's people anymore? So far, the answer is, as the vision is, he's leaving the temple. It's not good news. But then Josh took us to Ezekiel 47. If you've been around church for a while, you'll be familiar. This is like one of the hits. We like this passage. And so we should. Because it is glorious. Because a little later, God gives him an image of saying, this is what I'm going to do. Actually, I want you to hear this this morning. And I feel like this passage increasingly as we move into next year. Because again, Ezekiel's getting the significance of this on, on the experience of all of this exile stuff. 
it's difficult for us. We've got to try and place ourselves back in the story to get how this would have hit Ezekiel's heart, how this would have hit God's people's heart is because they're living this exile. And again, the reason that I feel it's so important for us to lean into this is because this is who we are too as God's people. And so when he receives this revelation where God says, this is what I'm going to do, this is the invitation, the sense of joy and excitement and um, you know, glory of, of it would have, you know, it, it's hard to imagine. So Ezekiel in 47, he's given this vision and he's on this spiritual tour through the temple. He's going back to the temple. And he says, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. So again, it's in the, that, that same place where there was all the unclean animals and idols and it was detestable, it was just dark and there was nothing right about it. From that place, he sees this, it talks about a trickle of water, a little stream of water. And then as the vision goes on, it says the, the vision, the water as it starts to flow, it, it, it sort of covers your ankles. And then a little bit further down, it's sort of up to your knees. And then, so the picture of it, it turns into this great and mighty river that flows out from the very heart of the temple. And this is the language he talks about. We looked at this. When I arrived there, I saw a great number. This he's talking about the, the river that's flowing out. A uh, great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, the water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. So the Dead Sea, lowest point on the planet. Nothing lives there. Barren. It's been like that. You can go and visit it today. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. I mean, that's would have been to the first hearers, this is ridiculous. Like what we're saying here is complete and utter transformation. The Dead Sea becoming a place of life? No. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river, wherever the river flows. There'll be large numbers of fish. It's good news for Micah. Because the water flows there and makes the salt, well, that's my son who likes fishing, uh, makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi into um, the other end, uh, where there'll be places for spreading nets. The fish will be many kind, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea, but the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kind will grow on both banks of their river. The leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. All starts from this little trickle that comes out from the centre. The same temple where just a few chapters before was full of dead things. I think this, in the same way that God has fed us and formed us around Jeremiah and our posture towards the culture and who we're to be, I think as we step into the new year, there's something in this uh, imagery here, in this message for us. One of the things that deeply resonates for me, I grew up in a church that, um, I've shared some of my story before I grew up in this region. I went to a church where I was surrounded by, not a big church at all, but surrounded by really good people who, from my earliest memories, the question about whether God was real or good could only ever be answered yes, intuitively, because I was surrounded by people who loved God. I knew that somehow before I could put fancy language. And they were just good people, good to be around. And the older I got and the more I could look back on that, I recognised this. Um, but I didn't really want a bar of it 
for a good portion of my life because I felt like it was just like, I can't deny that pers- like personally. And again, my, my family experiences and, and this community of faith and what they meant to us, I can't deny there's something real and authentic and good here. But in terms of it going out from this, like I, I'm, I'm living in my school and in this city, it doesn't seem to be very relevant to anything beyond there. So it's like a personal faith. But it was good, but that didn't seem to be very relevant. Didn't seem to be touching much else. And there was a disconnect that's really framed my life and kind of why I do what I do. Probably a, a big deal of why I did most of the most of the roles in my adult life was kind of, okay, after I resolved myself, I tried to ignore it because I felt like following God would just be a real bummer. Like all the things I really thought I wanted to do would just stand in the way. But in the end, it's like God, God's goodness followed me. And I couldn't deny it. And I just, I wasn't happy about it. I, literally, my, my conversion or my, it was the giving in. It was surrender. Right, fine. I can't ignore it. I'm going to be you know, bored and irrelevant for the rest of my life. But I know, that you're, I know that you're real. So, dang it, okay, you've got me. I kid you not, that's what it's like. But then the rest, it's like, no, this, this can't be right. For something to be so real to these people and so good, how come it's not good for the community? How come it's not good for this city? There's a disconnect. And as I leant into that, I discovered that actually there's lots of people who think the same. And in fact... Was a, we've referred to him, Josh and I, I think have referred to him before, a guy called Leslie Newbegin, um, who's very, very formative as a theologian and a pastor and a missionary about the church and the way it engages. He was a missionary in India in the 50s and 60s and came back to his native England. And if you could think about what happened in England during the 50s and 60s, come back to so the end of the 60s, was a very, very different England to when he left. And he kind of went whoa, what happened? (laughs) What happened? Why is everyone so far from God? And this was the question. Why does the gospel not impact culture anymore? Because the West, and again, the West has built on this Judeo-Christian ethic where the echo and shadow of God and Jesus and his ideas is at the core of all of the way we have shaped society. But now, why? It shaped us to this point, but now people are running away from it denouncing it and that's only ever sped up since then hasn't it and we're just living in that and so now in this moment we're in a sense of wow we are we're foreigners and exiles in this culture we're not wanted here where it's hostile you feel that you feel that so Leslie Newbegin was one of the first said what is going on why does the gospel not impact culture anymore well that's the disconnect isn't it why is the gospel not a river that flows out and brings blessing to every part that it touches. This is the Ezekiel picture. It's not just for the temple, it flows out. It's a trickle, but it flows out. And it's like it's, it splashes people's feet, but then it actually comes up to their knees and then it submerges people. What's going on? And you know what? Probably since I was in my early 20s, I've been, try- I've been, in- I've been captured by that question. Something's not right. Because it's so, how can it be so good and so right and so real and so transforming personally but not seem to be doing it culturally like we would expect and like it has through history? Something's not right. And I've always wanted to be a part of a church who's prepared to be honest about the starting point but absolutely convinced about what the end point is 
and then just figure, how do we, how do we get there? I believe that's where it's going to be. I believe that's true. I'm honest about where we are. I'm not, I'm not pretending that people are just flocking in and saying, what must I do to be saved? It can't, it's not, his reality, his goodness that pursues me is too real for me to go, it must be God. There must be someone we've done in between. I don't have great answers yet, I'm sorry. But I'm convinced that as we, rather than think about what's new, we rediscover what's old. And I think there's something here for us. There's something fresh and new that's actually very old and ancient that God's shaping us around. It's around this idea of how do we start a trickle? Because there's an invitation, Ezekiel here and actually all of Scripture, there's an invitation to just come and feel the trickle and the centre. And when we've done that through history, you know, you know what we call that? We call that renewal. And it's an open invitation that's there all the time. And throughout history, at any time, in any culture, in any place, individuals have had renewals where the water started to flow. Then there's been places and spaces and times in history where actually a bunch of people have done that together. So as it starts to flow, it gets your feet wet, your feet wet, and your feet wet. And it starts to become a stream and a creek and a flowing river. You know what we call that? We've called, we've called them different names at different times. We've called it outpourings. We've called it revivals. We've called, we've called them awakenings. And that's when it starts to shape the culture because it's undeniable. Now, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and I was around church and so the revival word is loaded. Hands up if you're with me because I've prayed for it. What if it just starts with a trickle? What if it just starts with me? What if we just focus there and get the team to come up? What if we just focused on the renewal of our life? And again, Ezekiel has got the keys for us. It's about what's at the centre. It's all about what's at the centre. We go back to this garden and we discover the power of Gandhi. Not that it happened, it's that it happens. At the centre, it was all good until something else came into the centre. I was listening to a commentator the other day and they said, it's really interesting that Satan, the adversary of your soul, comes in the form of a serpent, doesn't come to do physical violence, doesn't come with a stick, doesn't come to make you sick, comes with Eve and then Adam with what? An idea, a thought, a question. Did God really, did He really mean that? What if you were God? What if you could live for a turn? He comes with an idea and puts it at the centre. And this is where Again, it was Adam's role. Eve gets a bad rap in this story. It was really clear who was meant to be the priest protecting the cleanliness of the temple. Because that was the job of the temple, right? Of the priest. Making sure it kept pure. Guess who didn't come back at that idea? No, that's not right. So it manifests its form in, its form in some sort of action, but it begins with an idea. Paul says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. It's not on the outside. Very reminiscent of Ephesians, 
We fight not against flesh and blood. Spiritual warfare isn't about, now hear me right, it isn't about when you get sick or when there's demon possessed. That's the outflow of something else. Something first has happened. There's an idea of God that's been replaced with something else. There's an, there's an image of you or who you are that's been corrupted. That's where it starts. That's what Genesis says. That's what Paul says. On the contrary, they, the weapons we fight with, have the divine power to demolish strongholds. There's the spiritual language again. We demolish arguments and every pretense, every idea that sets itself up against the idea of God, the knowledge of God. And listen to this, we take captive every thought to make it a beating cry. If you don't align your thoughts of God, what's at the centre of your temple, of who God is and therefore who you are, in the midst of that, those thoughts will take you captive. And you're now building towers. You're now building towers. And they'll crumble. And you work your guts out. If your idea is, I've got to look after me. I've got to create my own way in this world. I can't trust you. Now that thought, which says something about God, it replaces the idea that God is your provider, that He is your source. Well, you're now captive to that idea and you are going to follow that 24-7. And that career or that image is going to chew you up and it'll crumble. And so we come, and this is why worship, and we're going to spend some moments now to simplify the most, the simplest, most powerful truth and the most powerful thing we can do is start by saying, all I need is you. That's the starting point. All I need is you. Now, whatever else follows, you know there's other things you need. But if that is your simple truth, you start, you're cleansing the temple. And this is why worship is so important and why I believe God's leading us to a greater fertility in worship because we need to regularly come back clean, clean house. No, 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 no. All I need is you. Push all of those things, all those high places. It says there um, uh, in that language, every pretension in the original, in the King James, it says every high place or every high thing. That language is Bible code again for the high places, which are the idols. Every thought that doesn't say God is at the centre and all I need is you, it's going to take you captive. But you come back and you start that and a trickle starts to flow. Might be just a trickle. But if you've got a trickle and you've got a trickle and you've got a trickle, pretty soon we've got a creek and then a stream out if we know that it's not for us it's through us not to us but through us then it flows and it's life-giving that's the end game that's where I'm going come with me once you stand come with me let's just see if we can get a trickle this morning let's see if we can get a trickle all I need is you